welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 8, uh, sorry, excuse me, Romans 13, 8 to 11. Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good day, good to see you. I'm Ryan Aris, and I'm joined by Joe Boot at the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute, and also hosted at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We are uh, we're here today. We've concluded. Regular listeners will will be aware that uh, we've worked our way through the Ten Commandments. This has been a series, uh, several months uh, in the offing, and uh, pretty pretty pleased with how that turned out. We had some excellent guests. We had some great conversations, and we're uh, we're happy with it. We've also had uh, several questions come in, and. Uh, we encourage that. We appreciate uh, all of your responses. We are, we're going to get through them, uh, and we're actually going to get through them. We're going to take a few episodes to get through them because there have been a good amount. So if you, if you are listening, if you've sent questions in, if you don't hear it uh, on this episode, hang tight. We'll, uh, we'll do this again. If you don't hear your question again, uh, try writing to us again. We, uh, we may have missed it. Uh, or we may have kind of uh, amalgamated it with a similar sounding question. But uh, in one way or another, we're, uh, we're grateful for everyone who has sent those in. We're going to do our best to respond to all of them. Before we get into that, I just want to remind you that we are edging up real close on the Worldview Leadership Academy. This is a, a program for youth ages 14 to 18, so high school age. Uh, it's happening in Port Colborne, Ontario, July 23rd to 28th this year, and we have been uh, we've been uh, pushing on this, and we have had a, a great response. Uh, we we have had such a good response that we have got extra capacity. We've gone and uh, and found a second uh, accommodation close by so that we can take take on. Uh, additional students. So there is there is more room in the program now. Uh, if that's something that you were you've been considering, you've been on the fence. Maybe you even uh, tried to register recently and uh, and weren't able to. Try again. Uh, EzraInstitute.com. All of the links, all of the registration and application information is there. We've got space for you because we have. Uh, gone out and uh, and expanded that capacity. So we'll look forward to uh, to welcoming you July 23rd to 28th, Port Colborne, Port Colborne, Ontario. Joe, my friend, good to see you again. Good to be seen. Excellent. So, we've had uh, we've had a couple of uh, couple of big weeks. Uh, last week we had to uh, had to respond to this this big CBC article that uh, and the uh, not exactly fallout, but just the the extended response from that. We are uh, we're rejoicing at the uh, the help that the CBC has given us in in exposing 
the message of the gospel to a national audience. Really appreciate their their support and help. Uh, you can uh, <laughs> see, you can find that article as well as uh, our responses uh, on last week's podcast, as well as uh, in an article that uh, that Joe wrote uh, that we published this week. Uh, that's also at uh, EzraInstitute.com on our website, and it's on the front page this week. Classic but example all, uh, of what. Uh... Classic example of uh, of that uh, that uh, scriptural saying: "What they intended for evil, God intended for good." I think there, Ryan, in terms of the expansion of the gospel. Amen. You know, whether uh, whether from false motives or true, uh, Christ is preached, and in this in this we rejoice. So, Joe, yeah, as I uh, as I mentioned, we've got uh, we've got several several cues to uh, to line up for A here. And that's uh, that's what we're gonna get into. These are these are all uh, in and around the themes uh, based on the Ten Commandments, or uh, more broadly speaking, the the Law of God. So I wanted to uh, to get uh, right into that uh, that programming here. And the first one, actually, this uh, this inspire is inspired by the same text from Romans thirteen that I read at the beginning. Uh, and the question out of uh, out of that text, uh, the uh, the listener writes, I've heard some teachers say that we no longer need to teach the Ten Commandments explicitly, but now that Jesus has come, we just need to love our neighbor. This is the fulfillment of the law. The question, is this perspective valid? And which would be more important to teach young children, for instance, uh, the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule? Yes. Um, so it's interesting. There's a couple of there's a couple of things in there, and I think there's a, a few things that are important to say. First of all, it's uh, it's it's critically important to remember that uh, Jesus Christ Himself is the living Torah. So He is the He is the truly obedient Son, and uh, He is the uh, the Word of God. Uh, incarnate. And so um, it would be very strange indeed if the origin and source of the law, uh, remember that the the 10 words of creation, uh, it's no mistake that the 10 words of creation are echoed then again in the 10 words on the mountain when God gives his law, because this is the very nature mm. of created reality, God's law word for all of creation. And his moral law in the Decalogue uh, is a manifestation of his will and purpose for creation. And that creation was spoken into being through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul makes it very clear, uh, as does the Apostle John, that Christ is the, uh, the source of uh, creation itself. It's from the Father through the Son. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made through him. So I think the first thing to say is that we cannot create an artificial division between the law given by the creator in the uh, book of Exodus, Exodus 20, we have it recorded there, and, and then Deuteronomy 5 on the mountain at Sinai, the very finger of God, and somehow divide that from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same God, it's the same triune God, 
uh, and it's the law word of God given to his creatures. And Christ is, in that sense, the living manifestation, the incarnation of that very word. He is the instruction of God, uh, most empirical, uh, fully incarnate and uh, made manifest for us, the one who obeyed the law fully. So we mustn't drive any kind of artificial wedge between Christ and the law. When Jesus in Matthew 5 uh, critiqued uh, in certain interpretations of the law, he didn't say um, you heard that Moses said or that God said, but I say to you. He, he simply says you have heard that it was said. He's critiquing the interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees. So Christ, when he goes up onto the mountain as the greater Moses in Matthew chapter 5, is the authoritative interpreter of his law. And that's absolutely critical. And, and of course, before mm. he's gone up onto the mountain to interpret the law, he's gone out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Remember that the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. There they were tested and uh, they failed, actually. And they didn't enter, that generation didn't enter into the promised land. Jesus goes out. Uh, into the wilderness as the truly obedient son. And there he is tested and he's tempted by Satan. And he defeats the temptations of Satan with the law of God, with the covenant law. And it's that law that he goes up onto the mountain to interpret. So any teacher, uh, a pastor, leader who says, well, we don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't need the law of God now because we've got this this uh, summary statement that uh, says, you know, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, love God and love your neighbor. Uh, and so just loving people fulfills God's law and therefore we don't need the law uh, mm. is um, bizarre and <clears throat> lawless because when the scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself, that command itself is drawn from Leviticus. That's that right. command itself is from the law. And what Paul is concerned to do in Romans 13, in the passage that you read and was mentioned in the question, is to show, because he says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he lists some of the commandments. Do not commit adultery, mm -hmm. do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment. In other words, you know them, all the other commandments. Uh, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law because uh, he's talked in uh, 1 Corinthians about the uh, love, of, uh, love of God. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 13, he speaks extensively mm -hmm. about the meaning of love. Um, and love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Here in Romans 13, he's, he's concerned to show that love is not divided from the law or separated from the law or in conflict with the law, but that true love to God and neighbor fulfills the commandments. So it would be absurd to say we don't need the commandments because we just have to love. Well, how would we know what loving is if we didn't have the yep. commandments? And if we were to say, well, love is a more generic, elastic principle that doesn't need the commandments anymore, then we would be in a position where we, were, where we would say that in some instances it may be loving to disobey God's commandments or violate God's commandments, which would be a complete contradiction of God's word. 
let me reinforce that very quickly. Um, I was thinking about a passage in uh, Matthew chapter 7 in regards to teachers uh, and, and pastors and leaders who might try and minimize or set aside the law of God. And uh, Matthew uh, 7, beginning at verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Then he goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness or you lawbreakers. Mm-hmm. So this uh, issue of being anti-nomos, being anti-law, uh, Christ is clear there that, that there will be People, I'm not suggesting that people who are mistaken, who are misguided, are wolves in sheep's clothing. They may just be ignorant. But there are those that uh, are wolves in sheep's clothing, are false prophets. They want to deny the law of God, reject the law of God, and teach others to do the same. And they may come in Christian clothing and uh, and come with um, even wonders, uh, and with high-sounding spirituality, but if they don't do the will of God in terms of his law word, then they are lawbreakers, and they will be told to depart from the Lord Jesus. Um, that is why the prophet says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So I want to come to Matthew 5 when we uh, when we deal with the, the next question, but it, just in terms of that first part of the question, no, we cannot set up a, a division between the golden rule, love God and neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, and the specifics of the law of God, because it is the specifics of the law which tell us what the love of neighbor actually is. The great fault of the modern antinomian church has been to take that word love, to ab- abstract it from its biblical context, yeah. redefine it, and then drop it back down into Christian terminology mm-hmm. and give it really a secular humanistic meaning. But, the, but love in Scripture is bound to the law of God. Love God, love your neighbor. That is a summation. It's a summary statement of the law. Love does not violate the commands in terms of our neighbor. Love fulfills, is the fulfillment of the law. So... Uh, That is not to say that if we merely observe the letter, we are fully loving our neighbor. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, as we'll come to in a moment, goes Mm -hmm. even more deeply into the fullness of the meaning of the law of love. And by the way, that's why um, it is called a law of love. And it's why it's also called a law of liberty. Um, And... uh, the teaching of the Apostle John in, in First John and the teaching of the Apostle James is very important in this regard. Um, Jesus made plain, if you love me, 
you will obey my commandments. So love and law cannot be juxtaposed. Uh, they are of a piece. They are involved in one another. Law is not a bad word, a negative word, a, a, a dirty word, a, a threatening word, a dangerous word in the Bible. No, it is the gift. It's a, it's a gracious gift of the way of life. This is the way God says, walk in it. It's not the source of life because we're sinners and we're violators of the law. And we can only be made right with God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's the work of the spirit in us that conforms us to obedience to God's, God's holy law. Right. Well, you've, uh, you've referred to uh, Matthew 5 a couple of times, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's, uh, let's go there now as we uh, address another question, uh, different but related. Uh, so in, uh, in Matthew 5, uh, 17, Christ says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And the question that uh, that's submitted there is, what is the Lord getting at when he says he has fulfilled the law, but then he immediately says it will remain in force until the eschaton, uh, the, the last days? If Jesus has fulfilled the law, why does it remain in force? And I guess I guess that would yeah, partially a... turn on your your definition of fulfill. Well, precisely. And I think the the questioner there has revealed that some of the expositions of the law that they have heard has not involved one of the important meanings of the word fulfill um, in the Greek language, pleiru, um, mm. which means in part to put into force. So uh, there are uh, Greek scholars have spilt a lot of ink uh, in sort of uh, talking about and explaining the various meanings, the various shades of meaning of the word fulfill. But it's very, very clear from the context in Matthew 5, 17, that the word fulfill can't possibly mean abolished or abrogated or set aside uh, because Jesus says explicitly, I have not come to abolish it. Well, if he's not come to abolish it, if he's not come to set it aside, um, then, um, the, then it's not done away, which is what he goes on to teach. And I'll come to that in just, uh, just a moment. So the word there fulfill has a number of meanings. In part, it means that Christ is the goal of the law. So he's not come to abolish the law, but to bring it to its goal, to bring it to its fullness, to bring it to its completion, uh, to bring it to its proper end in himself. Uh, that's not a setting of it aside. That's what is what was the law really aiming at, directed towards who was the one who would manifest its full meaning? Who would bring it to force in the hearts and minds of his people? And this is where there's an important connection, actually, um, which we will come to in our next question, I think, when we deal with um, the filling of the spirit and, and the, the meaning mm. of the covenant. But uh, specifically here, the word fulfilled does include the meaning of being put into force, which is precisely why there is no contradiction here. And that's why the, the, the questioner uh, has found this a bit confusing, because they've obviously heard explanations that sort of say, well, Christ has fulfilled the law, so, you, so we don't have to be concerned with it. 
But that's precisely the opposite of what Jesus says here. He's come to put it into force. He's come to bring it to its goal. He's come to um, explain, to manifest the totality of its meaning. Uh, it's coming to its, its appointed conclusion in the Lord Jesus Christ. So part of the putting it into force then is explained when he goes on to say that not basically a single punctuation mark of the law is going to be done away till heaven and earth pass away. That is this present order. So until the end of the age, till the end of this uh, present order of things prior to the eschaton, the consummation of all things, uh, the law of God is not going to be set aside. Not a punctuation mark of the law becomes irrelevant. Not a single aspect of it is no longer of use. It's all uh, there for our training, for uh, equipping, for um, reproof, for training in righteousness. Uh, it's all God-breathed and it's all significant and important. Now, we've talked in some previous episodes about the moral elements, the, the civil applications, the ceremonial elements that are transposed in the atoning and vicarious work of Christ in the priestly service of Christ. So we don't want to go through all of that uh, again. But the, the putting into force means that Jesus is clear that whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so, and that's critical, will be called least in the kingdom of what? The kingdom of heaven. He's not now mm. talking about the Mosaic period. He's saying that if anyone tries to set aside this law in their lives, dispense with it, and then teaches other people to dispense with it, uh, and he's talking now about believers because he's talking about them being least where? In the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is the other expression for the kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. So if you want to be least among believers, set aside God's law and teach others to set it aside. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever practices, though, he says, and teaches these commands will be called great. Where? In the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he came to preach, to announce. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, you will be you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and this is because the scribes and the Pharisees uh, used the law as a false means of salvation. They added their oral tradition to it. They hung it around people's necks as though by minute legal obedience to their coursistry to their interpretations of Torah, that was the way you would be saved. Jesus denies all of that because the only way that we can actually come to be obedient to the law is by the work of the Spirit in our lives. But what he is absolutely crystal clear about is that those who will be called great in God's kingdom are those who have sought to walk in obedience to the law of God and have taught the law of God. Uh, who have sought to be faithful to the law of God. Remember, the Bible has a definition for sin. We don't have to wonder about it. The Bible says sin is lawlessness. Right. And actually, the enemy of our souls, Satan, is called the lawless one. So we need to be in no doubt about the nature of sin, the nature of the devil, the enemy of our souls, and also, as, the, as Paul says to Titus, 
Christ has come to redeem us, to buy us back, which is what the word redeem means, from all lawlessness. So he's come to uh, redeem us from our lawless actions, restore us, and by his spirit, bring us into conformity to his law, that same violated law that necessitated him going to the cross because of the righteousness and justice of God. Wouldn't it be a strange thing indeed if the very righteousness and justice of God that meant Christ had to die and pay the penalty for sin became irrelevant the other side of the cross? That if God's righteous law somehow was no longer important? No, we've been redeemed from all lawlessness. It's so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us that Christ died so that he might justify us by faith and then sanctify us, bringing, bring us, bring us into conformity with the image of his son by his spirit. Now, think about that for a moment, because we often quote that, that um, we are being conformed, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, to the image of his son. OK, so we're being made as Christians to look like Christ. If I'm being made to look like Christ, what do I look like? Do I look like a lawbreaker? Do I look like a man who sets aside the righteousness and justice of God in his law? No, Christ fully obeyed, perfectly obeyed the law of God. So if I am being made like Christ, then I am being conformed to obedience to his law. And that's emphatic. So, and that's a caution to us all. That's a caution to us as Christian leaders and pastors and so on. Um, So many Christian people um, are confused by their under shepherds, by Christ's under shepherds, when they don't clearly explain the law of God, that we are to obey it and we must teach others to obey it if we would be great in the kingdom of God. So playroo fulfill includes Mm. the meaning of it being put into force in our lives. Right. This is a uh, this is a much more low stakes uh, illustration, but it's analogous. I was just thinking as you're explaining, if I'm you know, if I'm a if I'm a chronic uh, speeder, bad driver, and I rack up dangerous driving and speeding tickets for you know for months and years, and then I have to I go to uh, go in front of the magistrate, and I'm on the hook for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in in uh, traffic tickets, speeding tickets, and you come in, Joe, and you pay those for me. The uh, what kind of uh, you know what what kind of gratitude, what kind of uh, response or relationship would would we have if I said, "Great, glad that's over. Never could have done that myself. I'm going to go drive 180 down the road with my seatbelt off." Precisely. That's a good that's a good illustration, actually, uh, because it illustrates the absurdity of the notion that God's paying our debt in the Lord Jesus Christ was to to liberate us from the penalty of our violation was so that we could simply go back to our violating of the law. And Mm -hmm. the reason that Jesus raises the issue of the scribes and the Pharisees there in Matthew 5 and, and our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees is because they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. And and as Christians, we mustn't be guilty of the same hypocrisy. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 15, for example, when he's addressing the traditions, the the, uh, 
oral laws of the elders. It says at the beginning of Matthew 15, then Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem to Jesus. So they brought the experts in and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice not the law of God here, but the tradition of the elders, for they don't wash their hands uh, when they eat. So what was all important here was the outside of the bowl, as it were, was the outward appearance. They're not washing their hands when they eat. That's a tradition that we have. And why aren't your disciples doing it? And Jesus answered them, the scripture says here in Matthew 15, 3, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother. And the one who speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death or curses father and mother, which literally meant in the law, you can read it in um, Exodus 21, 17, uh, to treat one's parents with utter contempt. This is tied to the law of abusing, assaulting, striking parents in um, in Exodus 21. Uh, parents represent God in the Christian family. Um, they represent God's authority uh, when you're a child. And to treat them with uh, curses and contempt is a very serious matter. So God says, through the Lord Jesus says, honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me as a gift committed to the temple, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have revoked God's word because of your tradition. Hypocrites! And he goes on to talk about what the prophet Isaiah said about them. So the point here, and there's several illustrations that Jesus uses in his teaching throughout the New Testament about God's law. God God takes his law seriously. And uh, a, a, uh, there are v- various examples of bringing, for example, spice and cumin and every getting every aspect of the tithe right, but then uh, dishonoring uh, but but then re- uh, re- neglecting mercy and justice and neglecting the weighty matters of the law. So as Christians, we mustn't live in hypocrisy like the scribes and the Pharisees and set aside God's law by our cultural tradition, by our ideas of law, by our ideas of what reason says law should be, what our ideas of what we think natural law is, depending on which philosopher uh, you consult. Uh, We can use even the Western tradition to set aside God's law, and this is done frequently. Now, Jesus rebuked that sort of hypocrisy, and uh, he fully endorses here the law of God, and he does that repeatedly. In fact, people often fail to recognize that most of Jesus's dispute with the scribes and the Pharisees was in fact over their rejection of the word of God. He says, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Often people think of the scribes and Pharisees uh, as people who were really keen and and committed to obeying the law of God, and that was legalism, and therefore Jesus condemned them because they were too concerned about God's law. That is the opposite of the truth. The truth is that they were concerned to reject and revoke God's law in favor of their traditions and acted as hypocrites. 
And they hung their traditions around people's necks and told them, if you don't obey these, you, you won't be right with God and you won't be right with the religious authorities. And Jesus explodes all of that. So uh, we need to, to uh, take this seriously and recognize that Christ did not go to the cross so that I could indulge in lawlessness. He went to right. the cross so that I might be redeemed from my lawlessness and by the power of the almighty working of the Holy Spirit, uh, live a life of faith and obedience and trust and faithfulness to the law of God. Right. Thanks, Joe. So you've, uh, you've talked about uh, Christ and the law. You've talked about Paul and the law in Romans. Uh, our last question for today uh, is getting back to the, the context in which the law was given uh, in the, uh, the Old Covenant, that, uh, that covenant context. And the question is uh, fairly straightforward, uh, it, but it's a good question. A good question is a simple question that has no simple answer, I've once heard. And I like that definition. This is, uh, this is one such. Uh, listener writes, if sanctification for us in the new covenant is the work of the Holy Spirit, what about old covenant believers? Were they indwelt by the Spirit? And if not, how could they obey God's law apart from the Spirit? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is an excellent uh, question. And again, I think in part, it's been dispensational hermeneutics that have uh, uh, obstructed people's ability to understand this issue uh, properly that because it's so invaded the church and um, even in the form of, uh, of modified dispensationalism or even new covenant theology, these things get very muddled in um, people's minds. Um, it would be significant to uh, note that Anybody who walks in faith and obedience uh, to the law of God um, and trusts God is doing so only by the power of the Holy Spirit. The uh, old, older covenant saints were not saved by legal obedience. Now, mm -hmm. it's interesting to say in passing that some of the dispensational commentators were so um, determined to impose their artificial structure on the Bible and their various dispensations that they actually even assigned Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount to the Older Covenant era. Because you might be wondering, how on earth did they get around that? Well, they said, well, that was the, the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to Christians. It's just for older covenant believers. I mean, think about the audacity of a statement like that. Some even said that the, the Lord's Prayer was for the older covenant because it talked about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's a form really of Marcionism, it's, which was an early yeah. heresy in the life of the early church where the Marcionites tried to say, well, the, the God of the Older Testament is a God of law and judgment and, and justice, possibly even a demiurge, not the same creator God of the New Testament of love and light who sent Jesus. And so they, they dispense with the Old Testament and, and a number of important passages in the Newer Testament as well mm -hmm. to get away from the law of God, failing to see it as a gift 
a gift of God's grace to his people. This is the way, this is the path, this is the path of righteousness. Walk in this and be blessed and so on. So the older covenant believers, the best way to look at this is that the older covenant believers, the great saints of old, the great patriarchs, looked forward in history to the fulfillment of the promise, whereas we look back. So the issue was was simply our perspectives are different. Uh, Abraham and Moses and David no more lived in the time of Jesus than I did. But I look back, my from my position in history, I look back historically on the, in terms of human history, I'm looking back on the cross of Christ, on the resurrection of Christ, and on the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. I look back on the fulfillment of the promise and by faith, not because I was there, but by faith, uh, I now in a, uh, without, we don't want to sound in any way neo-Orthodox here, but this is the, the, but the, the, the thing that they uh, were onto in part was that whilst the Christian faith is a historical faith, so it happened in real history, it's not imprisoned in history. Uh, we have access to the same promises by faith because Christ is even now in the heavenly temple, sprinkling his blood upon the mercy seat and making intercession for all the saints. So uh, I look back upon the, even though I was not there historically, I look back on the fulfillment of those promises and by faith, Christ's righteousness applies to me, and by faith I am regenerated by the Holy Spirit and filled with his Spirit that I might live in obedience. Now, the older covenant believer uh, was in a different position in history, and they looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise. So they looked ahead to it. I look back on it. Now, it's crystal clear that this was so right from the beginning because Abraham, the apostle Paul teaches us in Galatians, was told that through his seed, this was the promise, through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham is identified as our father, our father in faith. In fact, Jesus says that many will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Why with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because they were saved by faith, faith in the promise, faith in the covenant promise of scripture. And that promise was that through his seed, and Paul says, not the many, Salvation wasn't going to be through an ethnic seed of Israel, but through the one, grammatically, which is Christ. So Paul mm -hmm. says the promise to Abraham was that the seed, Christ, through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Um, and because Abraham believed God, the scripture says, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, uh, he looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise in Christ as did Job. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last, uh, he shall, st uh, and, and at last, he shall stand uh, on the earth at the latter day, and in my flesh, I will see God. So the patriarchs, and the prophets, and the kings, and the faithful believers of old look forward to the fulfillment of the promise, and they saw it as in in the distance now the the great benefit that we have or the or the or the, the advantage we have over them is that they were looking um 
Well, Paul says even we look through a glass darkly. That's right. But for them, for them, it wasn't as clear because they didn't have the New Testament revelation. They didn't have the inscripturated gospels and letters of Paul. Christ had not yet died. He had not yet been raised. He had not yet ascended. He had not yet sent his spirit upon all the international gathered people of God. Um, that was still to come. And the patriarchs and the saints of old were living in the shadows. But even though we look back with much greater clarity, because we have all the inscripturated word before us and the gift of the spirit, Paul says it's still through a glass darkly. Then face to face, we shall know as we are known. Now, this is reinforced by the fact that the writer of Hebrews tells us that we're all going to be made perfect together. So we're not going to be, we're not made perfect separately. And I think the second part of their question, I think we'll probably leave for next week about the intermediate state and so on. But it's, it's yeah. hinted at when the, uh, the apostles in Hebrews talk about us all being made perfect together at the same time, the saints of old and thus those of us who are alive today and all of us who have been since the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be made perfect and glorified together as one body, Jew and Gentile, uh, as one people of God. So the, the Older Testament saints were not made righteous by legal obedience. They were only made righteous by faith in the promise. And as a response of love, just like us, our obedience to God's law is not because we are made righteous by, by obedience to the law, but because we love God and we respond with obedience to him. And likewise, the older covenant believers responded to God's gracious promise of faithfulness and love in the covenant with obedience to his word. And that's why David can write a song, in a sense, a love song of love for God's law, of love for God's righteousness, of love for God's instruction in Psalm 119, which, by the way, is the longest chapter in the Bible. It That's is a right. meditation on the gracious goodness and gift of God's law. And the, the covenant, which is so central to this, is made clear in Jeremiah 31, and it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. And the promise mm. of the covenant is that the law of God is going to be written uh, on the tablets of our hearts, that we will not say to our neighbor, know the Lord, because we'll all know him from the least to the greatest, that this law that was on tablets of stone uh, is going to be written by the Spirit into the hearts of the in in the for full in the full realization of the covenant of promise it's going to be written into our hearts and the the full international uh realization of that breaking every ethnic boundary was the day of pentecost and so the covenant is that the location of the law is changing it's not simply on tablets of stone in the ark of the covenant it's to be inscribed in our hearts by the spirit now that process was happening to king david it was happening to abraham the spirit of god was causing them to love god and love their neighbor and to seek to obey god god said to abraham walk before me and be thou perfect mm -hmm. and um 
uh, and David is described as a man after God's own heart. That's only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God, in fact, actually the first Pentecost was recorded in Numbers chapter 11, when the 70 elders gather together and God takes some of the spirit that's been upon Moses and he puts it on the 70 elders at the civic Pentecost and they prophesy, uh, which was just a small sign, a small indication, a small deposit of what would be the full realization of the coming of the spirit on the day of Pentecost when a new kingly priesthood, remember Israel is called a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. Uh, and then Peter replies that to God's people. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And that's no longer simply the people of Israel uh, who sought to obey the covenant, the ones that did. But now it is all those who believe and put their faith and trust in the promised seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost was the feast. The feast of Pentecost was the feast which Jews traditionally celebrated the giving of the law. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. That's when they celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And as the they gather together on the day of Pentecost in the upper room, and the spirit falls upon them, and they prophesy and speak with new tongues, and people from all the known world, with all their different languages, hear the gospel in their own language, and all the national, ethnic, restricted boundaries of the promise are now beginning to be realized. They're coming to their full realization. They're coming to their full fruition now. Um, all the restrictions and the boundaries that were set up to preserve Israel as a peculiar people are now being expanded to a new peculiar people, which Peter calls us as well, the Church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. That very day of Pentecost was the time the Jews celebrated the giving of the law. And the Holy Spirit then is writing his law on the hearts of his people, and he's sending them out with power and boldness to witness to the gospel of the kingdom, which is that Christ Jesus reigns, that he's died for our justification, he's been raised for our sanctification, he's ascended to rule the nations, and he's sent his spirit now upon everyone who will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, who can now walk in obedience to his law. So it's always by the spirit. Right. Well, what a uh, what a great exhortation and encouragement to uh, to close this episode on. Thanks a lot for that, Joe. Uh, as I mentioned, these are not all the questions we've received. Uh, this is not even the whole uh, body of the questions that we did answer. There's more to uh, to this last question that we'll pick up next time as well. But uh, again, appreciate you uh, uh, laying the laying those. Uh, answers out. Thank you to all of you who have uh, sent those in. Do uh, continue to send in more questions, and we will, uh, we will address them uh, in due time. From all of us here at the podcast for Cultural Reformation, I remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified, and we'll be with you again next week.